Well, hi, everybody. Welcome, welcome. I'm going to add my welcome to Denise's. Um, my name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in New York, and this is Recovery Jam. And, um, you know, I um, am appreciative of the opportunity to get to share here with all of you. And um, I think one of the things that um, we feel pretty passionate about, Janet and myself, and and many of us is that um, anyone can recover, right? If they're given um, correct information, clear-cut directions um, in a loving and supportive environment. And so that's really what we hope to provide, right? Correct information, clear direction, so it's not confusing and love and support and fellowship. I think that's a really important aspect of our of our program, this is not an independent study. We can't go off and do this on our own. Um, in fact, um, whenever you hear of people that fall into the food, one of the first things they tell you is that they started withdrawing, right? So it's important that we feel a sense of community. Community alone isn't enough, right? We need a foundation stone. Um, but community is an important aspect. So I'm happy to be here because this is all a part of how I have a sense of community, right, with all of you. Um, and uh, yeah, my name is Melissa C. And I've recovered from compulsive overeating. And so I'm gonna jump right into the chapter. We're gonna discuss tonight, there's a solution, um, which is really great news that there is a solution. <laughs> um, and if we open up our books to page 17, it says that we are people who normally would not mix, but there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness and an understanding, which is indescribably wonderful. We are like the passengers of a great liner the moment after rescue from shipwreck, when camaraderie, joyousness and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. But unlike the feelings of the ship's passengers, however, our joy in escape from disaster does not subside as we go our own individual ways. The feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which binds us. But that in itself would never have held us together as we are now joined. So fellowship, Camaraderie is not enough. It's just one element, it's one aspect. And here it is, the tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. So it's not the common peril that binds us, but it's the common solution is really what holds us together. And we have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news the book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. And I think it's pretty you know, interesting to think that we, we can absolutely agree. Like, how is it? Because I've met a lot of people through in and out of the rooms of recovery um, who don't agree, right? We don't agree on lots of things. But we actually do agree that there is a solution. There is one solution. Um, and so, you know, the paragraph talks about friendships that come from being rescued but that those relationships don't endure once the rescuing is done and the celebration is over. Like you get rescued and the celebration's over and everything, you know, you go on your own way. But ours actually continues indefinitely because to remain rescued 
we have to help in the rescuing of still others. That our recovery depends on, right, the growth of our spiritual condition, which is only sustainable through harmonious action. And we're bound together through self-sacrifice and work with others. So, you know, what does that mean? It means that those of us who have been rescued consistently get back in the water and rescue others. Like that's what it is. Um, when we say that we are part of a search and rescue mission, I believe that God launches rescue missions for addicts just like me. And I know that I was a recipient of one of those rescue missions, but being a recipient of one of those rescue missions doesn't mean that I go off and forget about the people that are still in the water. Not if I wanna remain rescued, I get back in the water and I do my damnedest to help those that are there. And the wonderful good news is, is in the beginning, it might be the obligation, but actually once you really have a spiritual awakening, it's a desire. We want to get back in the water and help others. And I, I see people, I see it happen for people as soon as they begin to get well, even just a little bit, they're already thinking about who do they know that they can help. It's very common. Um, so that was page 17. Now we're gonna jump um, right into page 18. And it talks about an illness, right? This is an illness that we have, an illness of this sort. And we have come to believe it as an illness involves those about us in a way no other human sickness can. If a person has cancer, all are sorry for him and no one's angry or hurt, but not so with the alcoholic illness for there goes annihilation of all the things worthwhile in our lives. So our disease of compulsive eating rarely, I have to say it's rarely even viewed as a disease or even an addiction. We get very little understanding from the outside community. They really don't get it. They don't think of it as a disease. And you know what, worse than that is we don't even offer it to ourselves. We don't even think about it ourselves as a disease. Um, you know, the, um, which is why when people pick up, they go right away to this feeling of shame, like that they should have been able to be okay, or I can't believe I did that. Um, whereas if you think about something as an illness, no one would feel ashamed if, you know, you had any other illness and it, and it left its remission and took root again, no one would say, I'm so angry at myself, my cancer came back, right? I'm so mad at myself, I, you know, I'm suffering from asthma again. I thought I had it under control and now it's back and I'm, I'm angry at myself. It's like that feeling of blame would not exist if you really believe that this was an illness, it was a true illness. Um, you know, and here's the frustrating thing about this being a disease, not only do we not, always recognize that it's a disease in ourselves, but we have no enthusiasm for the treatment. Oftentimes the people who are the sickest in the disease of compulsive eating are not feeling very enthusiastic about all the things that are required to get well. In fact, oftentimes they vilify those that are offering them suggestions or even the program saying things like, well, this is just too rigorous, or that's just too severe. 
or that's just, you know, that, that's, that sounds like restriction to me. That doesn't sound like freedom to me. All the ways that those that are suffering don't sound very enthusiastic about, about the course of treatment. Um, and what happens very often, if you're like me, we're lectured, we're ridiculed, maybe even fat shamed. Um, and although, you know, I suffered miserably and so did my family, I did not take this problem of mine seriously. You know, um, hearing it was a disease was a very important part of the process. It was that first, I remember going to a meeting, hearing that it was a disease and it was like, wait a second, this isn't my fault. This isn't my fault, right? Um, and yet, okay, just getting information that it's disease isn't enough. Like just knowing that you have this disease is not enough to stop the punishing effects of having a disease, right? Um, and in my, you know, my, also for my, for me, you know, I had doctors who repeatedly attempted to scare me and family members sitting me down, trying to tell me that they were worried about me. And none of these things worked, except something obviously did, right? What worked, um, something did because I wouldn't be here today otherwise, right? So there is a solution. What did persuade me then? What was it then? Well, it was those of you that got back in the water and helped me get out. That's what persuaded me. Other compulsive eaters. Page 18 says this, but the ex-problem drinker who has found this solution, who is properly armed with facts about himself can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. So we're being given directions on how to carry the message in that paragraph, how to win the confidence of others. That's what we're supposed to do, win their confidence. First of all, in order to do that, you have to be an ex-problem drinker. Like you have to have experience with this particular disease. You have to have the same step one experience. And so you can't be a non-drinker. You can't be someone who never had this problem, a non-compulsive overeater, right? A normal person, those normies out there can't carry the message, nor a problem drinker or a problem eater who's still eating, right? That won't work either. When we carry the message, we don't use frothy emotional appeal. That's what it says. Like we don't appeal to people from that highly emotional stance, like you're killing yourself or what are you doing to yourself? Or don't you see the effects of this disease? No, what do we do? We're armed with facts, facts about ourselves. Those are the facts that we bring forth to other people. And so we talk about ourselves and our experiences. And what I find most seems to draw a fellow compulsive eater in is when I share a story of my own suffering. When I tell a story, you know, about how bad it was, yet generally when I display my pictures, right? 
for someone else who's in the, in the depth of this illness and I show them my pictures and I talk about what life was like for me, what that does is it piques interest. It gets people drawn in. They wanna hear a little bit more. And that's what I'm supposed to do, win their confidence, draw them in. It gets the attention of the addict, which is what we need to do. And the next paragraph also tells me precisely how I'm gonna approach someone. So it says that the man who is making the approach has had the same difficulty, have to have the same difficulty, that he obviously knows what he's talking about, that his whole deportment shouts at the new prospect, that he is a man with a real answer, that he has no attitude of holier than thou, nothing whatever except the sincere desire to be helpful, that there are no fees to pay, no axes to grind, no people to please, no lectures to be endured. These are the conditions we found most effective. So what's effective? What's helpful? The right information delivered from a calm and hopefully humble messenger, right? Someone who's displaying humility and calmness. And the person, you know, that carried the message to me did not have an attitude of superiority. They were just another addict like me who had gotten well. Can't have an ax to grind. What does that mean? You can't have a complaint that they must discuss, perhaps an issue, right? A, a great big issue with pay and way programs or even other offshoots of OA. Be careful. If you've been in other food recovery programs and it didn't work for you, what is not gonna be your calling card to carry the message is to talk about how lousy those other programs were. That doesn't win anybody's confidence. That says that you got an ax to grind, that you have something to prove and that's not an effective way to carry the message, right? The recovered fellow should have the right demeanor. The way they carry themselves should be louder than their words. Which is why, you know, the joke here is that someone says that, um, you know, this is the lipstick meeting. Yeah, I'm gonna put on my lipstick. You know, I'm gonna try to look like I'm, I'm carrying a message, right? If I'm here to be helpful, as much as I would love to be, I'm not in my pajamas right now, right? I, I'm, I'll wait because my, my job right now on this meeting and this group right now is to carry the message, is to pay a 12-step call. So I'm supposed to look like someone who's got a message, right? Um, which is important, you know, for those of you that are looking to get sponsees and you go to meetings, Make sure that your demeanor shouts, not your words, but your demeanor shouts to someone that here's someone who's recovered. Here's someone who looks like they're well. Page 19 through 20 says of necessity, there will have to be discussions of matters, medical, psychiatric, social, and religious. We are aware that these matters are from their very nature controversial. Nothing would please us more as to write a book which would contain no basis for contention or argument. 
we shall do our utmost to achieve that ideal. Most of us sense that real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and respect for their opinions or attitudes, which make us more, make us more useful to others. Our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. So in, their, in recovery, there may be conversations that involve topics that might seem to incite disagreements, debates and disputes. But our solution means that we're going to proceed carefully. We don't set out to instigate problems. You know, so I, it's never should be my direction to point out how other meetings weren't doing a good job, right? That's not helpful. Um, not to show the ways that we might disagree with one another in any, in any way. I'm supposed to really not invite and incite disagreements, disputes, debates, and disputes. Because our solution means that we want to be useful and helpful. And our solution means that we're going to meet people's needs. In order to meet your needs, I have to be tolerant of shortcomings and viewpoints. And what does that mean to be tolerant? It means that I'm desensitized a little thicker skinned to other people, right? We're gonna meet people, oftentimes, people who are in the disease are filled with symptoms of this disease. Selfish, fear-filled, self-centered, needing to be heard, right? Wanting a spot, often, getting agitated easily. That's how I was. Things would aggravate me. You would say something and I was so easily offended. And those of us that are in the position where we're carrying the message to them, we must be tolerant of that. We must have thicker skin. And when I say tolerance really means, I think about it like if I develop a tolerance to a certain drug, it means that my sensitivity to that is decreased. I am thicker skinned when it comes to other people. Why? Because then it helps me to help them. If I'm not so easily aggravated by other people, I can meet them with love. I can meet them with the spirit of helpfulness. Our lives, my life actually depends on that as well. Not just theirs, but mine. And, you know, I came here thinking that my life was going to depend on just my food plan. Not enough, right? My life really is going to depend on how I can best meet other people's needs. Now we're going to look at the different types of drinkers. And this is on page 20 through 21. Moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely. If they have good reason for it, they can take it or leave it alone. Okay, those are people who really don't have a problem at all. They can moderate. Sometimes they overeat like Thanksgiving or a holiday, right? But most of the time they don't. Moderate eaters, when they eat, lose interest in food, right? When they get full, they actually don't want more. That's a moderate eater. 
Hard drinkers may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. But if there is sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warnings of a doctor becomes operative, this man can also stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult or troublesome and may even need medical attention. And those are the people I would say that their doctors give them a good talking to and it works, right? Not so for me. Those are the people who can have success at pay and weight places and bariatric surgery for some of those people might be an option, right? They might require medical intervention, but gastric surgery works for them. And you can also, by the way, find some of those people at Overeaters Anonymous. They're welcome at our meetings too, because the only requirement for membership in Overeaters Anonymous is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Not necessarily someone that I could sponsor, just a desire alone wouldn't be enough, but um, they're welcome here amongst us. They can get well with support and a good food plan. And for me, I was always trying that approach. That was the one I wanted. I wanted to be that kind, right? Just give me a little fellowship, a little support. Please don't make me have to surrender entirely. Please don't make me have to have a spiritual awakening. I wanted OA light, right? OA light didn't work for me. I'm not that type. But what about the real alcoholic? That's us. That's me. He may start off as a moderate drinker. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. But at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. So here we're getting a clearer understanding of what a real compulsive eater is. And I would say this chapter is called, there's a solution. So why do I need to know this now? Why do I have to know more about what a real compulsive overeater is? Can't you just tell me the solution? Well, unless I'm convinced that I am the real compulsive eater, I likely won't feel the need for the solution. Remember, I come here not very enthusiastic about the solution. So unless I am convinced that I am the type with whom all other methods had failed entirely and that there's no chance that anything else is gonna work for me, it's kind of hard for me to get enthusiastic about this. It's important that I know precisely who I am and what I've got. And the chapter then continues to describe the real alcoholic to further help us determine if we really are in this category. Page 22 says, why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another debacle with all its attendant suffering and humiliation, why is it that he takes that one drink? Why can't he stay on the water wagon? What has become of the common sense and willpower that he still sometimes displays with respect to other matters? And perhaps there will never be a full answer to these questions. Opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic reacts differently from normal people. 
we are not sure why once a certain point is reached, little can be done for him. We cannot answer the riddle. So our solution does not involve discovering why we became compulsive eaters. This is not therapy. It's not, right? I always wanted to know why. Too much of my time and energy was wasted on trying to uncover the why. We are not unpaid psychologists. That is not what we're here for. Um, and I found out, you know, trying to uncover the why, always examining the why, why is an immature question? That's what I think. Um, and when I say it's an immature question, my explanation of the why is, you know, any of you that are parents can understand this. Um, when my kids were little and I would tell them that they had to go to bed, the first thing they would say was why, right? Or I would ask them to do something as a teenager and it'd be like, why? Why do I have to do that? They don't really wanna know why. They just wanna change your mind, right? My kids did not want me to really explain why, you know, nine hours of sleep for a little kid was important for brain development. They didn't care. They just wanted to stay up later. And it was the same thing when I was busy asking why. Why? Why do I have this? And really for me, I wanted, um, I wanted an out. I wanted to assign blame to other people in my life, right? Basically my parents. I wanted to assign blame to my parents that they did this to me. And, um, and so what? Now, so what? Let's say um, I could get the why question answered, right? I don't think I can get the why question answered, but Let's say I could, let's say I said, oh, you know what? It was because my mother fed me a particular brand of formula instead of nursing me, right? Or it was because of the influence of like, I don't know, television, who knows, whatever it was. Unless I'm gonna get in a time machine, unless that's part of my solution to get in a time machine, go back and undo a series of events that caused the why, it's kind of a waste of time, right? Maybe interesting, but it's a waste of time. The better question is, what am I going to do about it? Right? What am I going to do about it now? Page 23 says, these observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. If you ask him why he started on that last bender, chances are he will offer you any one of 100 alibis. Alibis, explanations, reasons, excuses, defenses. Actually, alibis are the lies that my mind creates to get my mind to give me permission to eat. That's my alibi. It's got one mission, eat, right? That's its mission statement. And sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in light of the havoc an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. So, you know, in a weird way, these lies, my mind tells me that gets me to give in, they sound believable. And really, my mind would make 
them up, make up these lies, right? Make up these sound excuses um, to get me to take the extra bite, you know, or helping or food choice. And it would sound like no big deal. That's what my mind does. Compulsive eaters rarely pick up the cupcake as their first compulsive bite, right? That's not the way the disease sneaks in. It comes in in a way that sounds like it's no big deal. My brain minimizes the dangers of the food. Sound, you know, it, it's, I've heard it said, it's like the, um, it's like the bunny rabbit that kicks you to death seems really cute and harmless, right? Um, so they, it sounds like the philosophy of the man though, who having a headache beats himself on the head with a hammer so he can't feel the ache. If you draw this fallacious reasoning, fallacious, mistaken, misleading, erroneous, deceptive, false, wrong and untrue reasoning, to the attention of the alcoholic, he will laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. That's what would happen to me. If you pointed something out to me while I was in the midst of being convinced by my own mind that eating was a good idea, I would get annoyed, right? I would either <laughs> laugh, be annoyed by you and just shut down, right? So for me, you know, here's what it looked like, right? If I have a cold, I instantly wanted certain foods like sucking candies or ice pops. And, and if I had a stomach virus, right? I had to have ginger ale, saltine crackers, toast, right? And I wanted to use these foods medicinally to treat the problem. But a cold was not as serious as morbid obesity, right? There's no way that having a common cold was nearly as deadly to me as being over 300 pounds, which is where this disease had me. Um, you know, it's like um, a headache isn't nearly as big a problem as a head wound that you get with a hammer, right? You have a headache, so you're gonna beat yourself up with a hammer. So you get like a, a big head wound. Um, I ate mostly at one point to ease the pain I felt that was caused by my compulsive eating, right? When I was in the throes of this disease, when I was morbidly obese, I ate to soothe the pain of being morbidly obese. That makes no sense. But those of you who have suffered understand that precisely. Nothing so much as soothe the pain of living in a 300 pound body as much as a pint of Ben and Jerry's, right? Page 23, paragraph three says, but everybody hopefully awaits the day when the sufferer will rouse himself from his lethargy and assert his power of will. By the way, it wasn't just my family that wanted me to pull myself together right, to get motivated, get moving, to do something. I was also awaiting that day. I too felt like I was stuck inside myself, trapped inside myself, waiting for the day, you know, that I was gonna someday get it together. 
which is why I say I lived so much of my life saying, someday when I'm thin off, someday when I'm thin off. And for me, I look back at that and I think how many years I wasted just partly alive, just half alive, watching life from inside my window. That's what it felt like. Like I was inside and I looked at life from through my window. And I wanna say one of the most liberating things when I started working on the 12 steps was feeling like I wanted to embrace life even though I was still obese. That's what happened. I put the food down. I started working the steps, honestly, intensively. I was not on a diet, right? Because I'm not, I don't live in restriction. My body took time to lose the 160 plus pounds. It just did, took a while. But I began living immediately because I said, you know what? If this is the size of my body right now, then this is how I'm meant to live right now. And I'll be damned if I'm gonna waste one more minute saying someday when I'm thin out. I don't believe that that is part of our solution. We're not supposed to hold our breath and wait until the day that we suddenly deem ourselves worthy of being human beings, right? And that's not to say that I'm like all a fan for fat serenity, because I do believe that the solution includes allowing our bodies to experience the transformation as well. A physical transformation is part of how we live this life, but we don't waste time not living while we're waiting for that to occur. And that's just my own heartfelt, passionate belief. Um, so page 24, paragraph one says, the fact is that most alcoholics for reasons yet obscure have lost the power of choice in drinking. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago, we are without defense against the first drink. So basically, I have willpower that disappears without a warning, gone. And I like to say that willpower has an expiration date, but for me, the date is a secret. I don't know when it is. And it seems like it's there, until the moment I need to call upon it and then it's just mirac it's just gone. And I have a memory that's unreliable when it comes to food. I have an awesome memory, by the way, in other areas. You know, I, um, I have this commute I take to work daily. I know exactly where the police kind of like to hide underneath the overpass. I don't even need to be pulled over to recall upon that to keep me in check. I can't apply the same thing to food. I can't remember in time to ease up my foot off the gas of, of, of the first compulsive bite. Just doesn't exist. And the almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they're hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There's a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. 
So consequences, right? The burn of a stove doesn't work for this disease. Reward, and you know, it's funny because rewards and consequences are generally very effective when it comes to managing behaviors, right? Which is um, how I know that the problem I have is unmanageable, at least by me. You know, for me, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to handle the food like normal people. In fact, you know, when I was getting ready to binge, I knew I was going to binge. It's not like my memory was so broken that I would say, well, I'm just going to have a bite. I actually, most of the time, I knew I was well sure that I was going to have a binge. In fact, I was excited about the binge. I was already getting intoxicated with the food in my shopping cart before I even took a bite. I would look forward to the binge. For me, what did I forget? Was that tomorrow I would not have the power any more than I had in that moment. I thought that come the next day or come Monday, my memory forgot that Monday never comes for someone like me. That for me, Monday is 20 years. That's what it looks like for me. I pick up and I'm gone. I can't seem to rouse myself come Monday. Or if I do, it's gone by lunchtime, right? And the other thing is that I forget that I care. That's really what happens. My memory fails to tell me that I even care. So I, I say things like, who cares anyway, right? As if I don't care that I'm sitting inside watching life outside the window, that I've been spending my life saying, someday when I'm thin off, right? In those moments, I can't even recall that I care. When this sort of thinking is fully established in an individual with an alcoholic tendencies, he has probably placed himself beyond human aid. And unless locked up, may die or go permanently insane. But for the grace of God, there would have been thousands more convincing demonstrations. So many want to stop, but cannot. And I love the word grace, you know. Grace, it's an unmerited, unearned gift. You know, it comes from gracious. Gracious means to have been offered consideration, to have been shown favor. And so God is gracious. And if not for God's grace, for not for the graciousness of God, a God that is favorably inclined towards us. And that's what I believe. I believe that God is favorably inclined towards all of us. In fact, my entire recovery is reliant on the consideration and favor of my creator, which is unmerited, unearned, and always available. It's only by aligning myself that I can live in a state where I can access this grace. This grace is always available to me. It's my ability to access it that becomes blocked. And the solution is being able to access it. That's our solution. 
there is a solution. Almost none of us liked the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of our shortcomings, which the process requires for its successful consummation. Complete, finalized, as if in a marriage, right? That's what I'd say, it's consummation. But we saw that it really worked in others. And we had come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been as we had been living it. And we have found much of heaven and have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we have not even dreamed. And I have to say, I did not dream about living in a fourth dimension. You know, my dreams were about wearing smaller size clothes. That's what my dreams were. They were so small. I didn't even know how to dream effectively. And the fourth dimension, what is the fourth dimension? It means living in a recovered state, right? It's living in a brand new way. The great fact is just this. This is probably one of my favorite parts. The great fact is just this and nothing less that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows and towards God's universe. We have a whole different attitude, a whole different perspective on living. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us, which we could never do by ourselves. So the solution is that I can feel God inside of me, that God has entered into my heart. I have a relationship with a living, loving creator that is gracious and powerful. One of my favorite names for God is found in the agnostics. On page 56, it says the presence of infinite power and love. And when asked, what is the solution? That's what I can point to. A process that when complete, allows me to have a relationship with power and love. And when I have a relationship with power and love of the infinite kind, it makes eating alcoholic foods uninteresting. It makes eating foods that are not on my food plan just not so exciting, irrelevant, uninteresting. Bottom of page 25 says, if you are seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there's no middle of the road solution. There's no OA light for someone like me. We're in a position where life was becoming impossible. And if we had passed into the region from which there's no return through human aid, we have but two alternatives. One, to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other to accept spiritual help, which we did because we honestly wanted to and were willing to make the effort. And I really, I do remember what a pivotal paragraph this was for me and it really continues to be. What it says is, 
I got only two choices. Both seem pretty extreme, door A or door B. And you can't enter both. And really what happened for me is disease put the squeeze on. I thought I was hanging out in the middle of the road in the corridor, in the hallway between door A and door B. And I got to a certain point and it was like the hallway no longer existed. It dropped out from underneath me. I had only two choices. One, go on and live the rest of my life eating myself to a state of oblivion. For me, where my mouth bled, that's what it looked like. At the end, my mouth was bleeding. I ate so much that my gums bled. And I was spending my life blotting out how miserable I was with someday when I'm thin off right? Living that existence. And the other one is to accept spiritual health. That's it, right? And it's important that somebody wants to. If you meet someone who's not enthusiastic about any of this work, you can offer them love, you can offer them compassion, but they're not ready for a solution. They're just not. Because one choice is to do everything you're directed by, yes, a sponsor who's showing you that they have recovered by doing this program so you can get help that you really want it. I wanted that vital spiritual experience that it talked on page 27. Vital spiritual experiences, huge emotional displacements and rearrangements, ideas emotions and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. You know, and there's an asterisk there telling you to look at the spiritual experience in the appendix. And, you know, if you need further explanation about the personality change that they're referring to, basically what I can say is that I am not the same woman that I used to be. You know, for me, I'd say my roots grasp new soil. The things that sustain me, the things that support me, the things that give my life meaning, direction, and purpose are not the same as they once were. The chapter continues to reassure those of us who have not had a strong religious background, as well as those who have, that it doesn't matter what we come here believing. It doesn't matter. Page 28 says, we have no desire to convince anyone that there's only one way by which faith can be acquired. If what we have learned and felt and seen means anything at all, it means that all of us, Whatever our race, creed, and color are, we are the children of a living creator with whom we may form a relationship upon simple and understandable terms as soon as you're willing and honest enough to try. So we need a relationship with God. That's the solution. And it doesn't matter at all what your religion is, or even if you have a religion, it doesn't matter. Those having religious affiliations will find here nothing disturbing to their beliefs or ceremonies. There is no friction among us over such matters. 
we think it no concern of ours what religious bodies our members identify with as individuals. So I know for myself, I've had experiences with people who have been all different forms of religion. And it means it has never been a stumbling block to helping one another. In fact, page 29 assures us we find such convictions no great obstacle to a spiritual experience. Each individual and the personal stories describes in his own language and from his own point of view, the way he established his relationship with God. So when we're asked, what is the solution? The answer is right here. To establish a relationship, a friendship, companionship, a connection with God. And all the actions we take should be in order to establish this relationship and grow this relationship. After all these pages, that truly is the whole point. All of our shares should center around this as our overarching goal. And so what I always say is that for me and my story, my story is just, I'm just one other woman, right? who found a relationship with God and that God really is the miracle. God is the hero of my story and God is the source of the miracle. And with that, I will pass.